welcome to Media Plus from the Mac Observer. I'm Charlotte Henry and this is our weekly look at the world of digital media and Apple's place within it. And I'm really, really excited today to have with me Chris Stocker-Walker, who's an author, a journalist who you've read in all sorts of places, who covers the digital media, digital culture landscape. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Chris has written a book on YouTube, some would argue the book on YouTube. He has got a book on TikTok coming out very, very soon, uh, next month, July the 22nd, which will be very much worth reading as well if uh, the one on YouTube is anything to go by. And he's written in all sorts of places, including Wired magazine. And it was it was the Wired magazine piece you wrote recently, Chris, that got me, well, made me want to have, I'd wanted to have on the show for a while, actually, if I'm being honest. But then I found an excuse, which was your piece for Wired magazine, and here's your very unprovocative headline. It looks like Apple is after Substack's email empire. Now, I don't want the excuse I'm the writer. I didn't write the headline. I'm not having that reporter's excuse. It's a provocative headline, but it's a story a lot of us have been thinking about since WWDC, where Apple announced mail privacy protection. I actually put up a video last week showing users uh, how to turn it on or how they will be able to turn it on in iOS 15. So... Explain the context of this, Chris. It's uh, mail privacy protection stops uh, email companies being able to see things like a user's IP address, a a recipient's IP address, uh, whether their location, whether they've opened an email or not. That's the idea, isn't it? Um, Why are people like Substack and others freaking out and should they be? I think that they may be freaking out because a large part of the way that the email newsletter market works is through these invisible tracking pixels. We've kind of had a handful of metrics from the basis of my reporting of people who uh, know far much more about this than I do, who basically say metrics that are involved in newsletters are open rates and click-throughs, basically, as well as the number of subscribers. So the number of subscribers will stay the same regardless of what Apple do with this mail privacy thing. But the number of opens and potentially the number of click-throughs is slightly affected because of the fact that you are not able to track these people in such a granular way. And if you're thinking about that in terms of selling advertising against this or, you know, bundling up uh, various different journalists in in subscription packages and then selling that to marketers to say X number of people read this email. You're guaranteed to have your ad in front of this many eyeballs. If it's suddenly subscribers who could be dead or dormant, then that's different. I think it is more affecting the email marketing side of things than necessarily the email editorial side of things because... That's kind of just been reading something rather than necessarily having an action at the end of it. Yeah, I want to dive into that. But there was a staggering statistic that I probably should have realised, but I didn't when I was reading your piece. Uh, And you say between the iPhone and Apple Mail apps, more than 60% of all email accounts are opened in a piece of software controlled by Apple, i.e. the Mail app. That's pretty staggering. This is not a small problem for the email industry if if this becomes an issue this is we're not talking about a niche part of the market no we're not and and i think this is what is spooking people quite so much mm. is that it does look an awful lot to some people like this is apple waking up and realizing that they kind of have 
almost a monopoly position in this market and then moving to do something. And obviously it comes, yeah, in in the context of the Epic stuff and the App Store cuts and all of these things that are going through courts right now where there seems to be this argument that Apple is somehow um, exerting its market power to try and squeeze either consumers or other suppliers that use this ecosystem. And and so I think that it's, you know, had this been done in a pre-epic world, Mm. maybe this would have been seen much more as the way that Apple wants to present it, which is this big privacy play. But I think people are much more sceptical now because of the broader context. Yeah. And it's also an interesting thing that in a lot of the cases like the the Apple versus Epic trial and so on, a lot of Apple's argument is either we're providing a thing that improves service to customers and also they continue to insist in all these antitrust hearings, we are not the dominant player. We are not the major part factor in the market, whether it's, uh, you know, mobile operating systems or whatever. And, you know, there are more Android phones than iOS phones is basically what it comes down to in the world. But when you see a statistic like that one in your piece that 60% of email accounts are open via Apple's email marketing. So even if you have a Gmail account, you're still accessing it using an Apple product. That surely shifts the dynamic of the conversation a little bit. It does. And I think I think that is the thing that, that people are most concerned about is that this does look like this is a, a market that is dominated by Apple. And because of that, and because Apple is a business that is not ashamed of making money, there is this idea that there is a market opportunity there that they are looking to exploit. And you know, it's something that we'll only be able to tell in the course of the next few months as to whether or not they actually do roll out some sort of aggregated newsletter product where they're going to bundle in all of their user data and then sell that as a differentiator i suppose yeah. in the market so apple yeah apple becomes the provider instead of uh, maybe a well let's actually i don't want to keep mentioning stuff that without diving into the very important point you made at the top of the show which is that there could well be a difference in how this affects editorial type newsletters the type of thing we've just i've discussed here already on the show the things like Substack and review that have become very trendy and of the moment re, you know recently and people getting big money to to use Substack, people making big money from Substack, uh, Twitter trying to challenge it with its purchase of review and its own kind of equivalent products and so on. Um, and then there's the kind of email marketing stuff that we all have our email inboxes inundated with. And as you mentioned earlier, these very often, particularly in the email marketing side, have what they call hidden pixels, which, as you say, uh, can track if you click on a link, if you you know open or how far you know what your journey through having from that link is uh, whether you've opened the email how many times you open the email all those things what your location is you know so you can get an idea of your readership or your your target audience and that those are important for marketers they yeah they are and i think i think that's that's the thing that is spooking a lot of the marketers that i spoke to is, is they seem to to worry a lot of them that um, their entire business is going to go away because of this. Because, you know, w- one of the things that they point out is... Does that seem is, likely to you? Well, there's, there's lots of different elements into this. So it, mm. it's, it's not just the fact that they lose the ability to have a metric to sell to advertisers, but there's also the fact that um, 
from from what they explained to me, email marketers very carefully curate and cull sort of dead subscribers from their lists because that affects the way that their emails are surfaced in inboxes. So for instance, you know, Google I assume, smart I assume you don't mean actually dead. Although no, as maybe yes. as in people well, who are not be, active yeah, actively yeah, exactly. clicking, reading the emails and so on. Yeah, so there are you know there is this you know idea that um, you know, Gmail smart inboxes and things like that will surface more relevant content based on the proportion of people who open emails from that particular domain name. And so, you know, if you are if you have a an email newsletter that has a thousand subscribers because you've built that up over maybe ten years and only 50 of them actually open it because only 50 of them have subscribed in the recent past and the other 950 aren't that bothered because actually they've moved on from that industry or whatever if only 50 of those open it then suddenly that becomes less interesting and less relevant and gmail somehow knows that and it shunts you off into that promotions or that spam inbox which therefore has an even more negative effect because it means that your stuff isn't actually getting put in front of eyeballs at all. So, it, you know, it, there are these multiple layers to this mm. that people always try and game the system. And I think that is what's concerning people the most about this is uh, actually this could have an And that's particularly on the threat. marketing side, is it? Yeah, because obviously they they work in these numbers and, and they, they kind of rely on the fact that they get their stuff in front of people so even if you know even if you're unable to say that i have a i don't know a 20 percent open rate on my newsletter the fact that um you know if you take that idea of measuring that away and you replace it instead with something like uh, how many people are clicking through on links in my email if that email never actually reaches a person's priority inbox and is therefore never open, nobody will ever click through it. So you know, it, it's kind of not just damaging that one metric, it's damaging other potential mm. metrics that could replace the measurement of that audience. Um, and just on the, let's talk about again the email marketing and then I'll come to the Substack bit. Um, you spoke to someone called Jens Leonardson, who is an email marketing expert and said the only people that are affected in bad ways by this change, i.e. the introduction of um, male privacy, uh, are the pe- ones measuring the wrong stuff. He says that knowing how many people opened your email is just slightly more interesting than actually the subscriber numbers, which is quite an interesting perspective. Do you think actually Apple's change... I mean, we've seen this in other places, could actually prompt more interesting ways of measuring and targeting and producing content for people. Well, yeah, this is this is kind of, I guess, the, the multi-million dollar question as to whether or not it actually will trigger real changes. And, you know, I pointed out in the story that there are people like Packy McCormick, who runs a, a sort of financial advice newsletter called Not Boring, who put together a pitch deck for his newsletter. And instead of using those old metrics of open rates and things like that, he actually did a survey of his users. He, mm. you know, he asked them what they liked, what they found out. And you know, from that, he got a lot more granular information that he was able to present to advertisers. I mean, you know, Jens Lennertson was really interesting to, to talk to and get his thoughts. As with all of these kind of email marketing people, they're often quite 
braggadocious. They often kind of like to say they have the way forward that works. And so, yeah, I think there was a little Sorry, bit of people in marketing in are full of bombast and showing yeah, off. Surely not. Yeah, so I think yeah, I think there was a little bit of I know better than the others here, yeah. but there is a valid point here, which is that if this is going to be permanent, if actually Apple are serious about this privacy protection thing, rather than trying to produce their own product, then that means that all of that will theoretically go away, and therefore there does have to be a different way. Mm-hmm of accessing information and knowledge about the demographics and the interests of an email newsletter audience. So, yeah, there has to be changes going on. Yeah. Uh, So let's go, having sort of had a look at the marketing side, let's take a look at the editorial side that you mentioned. Now, do you think... uh, I find it hard to imagine, although it's not impossible, that people in Cupertino were sitting around going, Substack is doing really well, right there next on the hit list. I find that hard to imagine that a company the size of Substack would bother a company the size of Apple. Yeah, and I think that is true. But I think what is particularly interesting about that is that Apple, and you know this far more than anybody else, given your experience in journalism covering this space and covering this company, is they are often very quick and early to look at market opportunities. Mm. And so even if they're saying, well, actually, you know, Substack is still in its early stages, I can kind of see them, if not necessarily cynically, looking at it and going, this is... um, uh, sector that we want to get involved in i can kind of see them going well we see that this in the future is going to become a main way that people consume content and therefore we need to look afresh at these privacy concerns if you think that is the way that they are actually coming to this yeah. in good faith and if you i don't you don't have a substat newsletter do you? you're not one of the journalists who have fled or taken a nice big check if Substack want to give me a big old check, that's absolutely fine. I did a review newsletter once a couple of years ago, and I think I got eight paying subscribers in total. <laughs> um, yeah, I played with Substack as well. I've written a couple of things on it, just you know, if nothing else, to sort of see what how it all works. And you can see relatively granular detail, the email addresses of people, um, how many times they open your product, what all those kind of things. I'm wondering if you were one of those people who had got a great big check. Actually, not one of the people that got a great big check. If you were one of the people that had started building something without the big check, um, and you were you'd got to a point where it was making your living, and you were doing quite well, you'd done it for a year. This was the point where maybe other people were going to start. You know, people were making the decision to renew or not. If you've got to that point, would you be worried as a Substack content producer that suddenly? up to 60% of your readers, you might not be able to track them properly and see what's happening properly. I I don't know whether I would care. I think that I'm probably getting paid anyway by Substack, whether or not I know precise details of it. Like, I mean, but this, this because is more you've fundamental. Because you've got your, subs- you can always see your subscriber numbers. This doesn't affect that in any way. Yeah, and, and I think this is kind of a more fundamental question about like, the Substack business model and things like that. You know, I'm I'm not hugely convinced that they are going to care how far through an email someone gets or 
you know how many times they open it like they it's a prestige thing at the minute at least right is they are interested in having big name writers come because they think that will get them audiences aggregated mm. you know just the huge numbers but i'm talking as uh from a writer's perspective. So there's writers that have left publications without taking a check from Substack um, and gone, do you know what? I can make this. I've got my audience. I think I know what my audience is. And so I've got to build this list and do my own journalism. Would you, if you were one of those writers, would you be concerned or again, just the basic principle that, you know, if people are paying you, you know what your subscriber numbers are, if the, if the money's still coming in, you don't actually care that much if people are going through your email or clicking on a link or even opening it to a certain extent. Yeah, I think I'm. I think probably for the long term viability in terms of how do I pivot off Substack if and when the the bottom falls out of that market, I would Ooh. want that data. But but that's well, that's just my you know. You would always have the email list still. You will, but whether or not those again are living subscribers or dead mm. subscribers or dormant subscribers or whatever, you don't really know at that point. And you can get like you know, a year or two down the line and suddenly you've lost that information. But then having said that, you know, if you are building up a good enough product and you should have an engaged enough audience that you can email them as Packy McCormick did and say, Hey, who's still around, who's willing to share information with me? And building up that community i guess is really key in this instance so if you have a strong enough community you should be able to survive uh, and i'm pretty sure if just kind of get into the mindset of apple pr here but um i i imagine if we, i was speaking to one of those people they would kind of make a similar case and say content creators will always be able to engage with their audiences if they're making a good enough product yeah but <laughs> you, you and I both know that um, you know, we, we've been around this space long enough. I, I am a tech reporter who is hugely tech skeptic and dislikes the idea of tech pros. So I, you know, I'm always thinking that there is something sinister going on here, and that's maybe just because I'm worn down and defeated and tired and <laughs> everything. But I, you I too broke, Chris. Yeah, basically, yeah, it did. So, but you know, I, I I'm, I'm of the, you know. These, these companies have got huge and rich and powerful, not necessarily by being nice. And so I'm not sure why we should think that when they're this size, they are necessarily turning to be hugely benign leaders in this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's going to be an interesting one because uh, we, it interests me that we haven't heard anything directly from Substack yet. They have, they've decided to just keep it calm not have a freak out, not have a row with Apple, probably sensible. We haven't seen them do a kind of thing that Epic did and do a 1980 Fortnite type video. And we we haven't seen any backlash yet. And I think probably, let's remember, we only just got the first beta releases of iOS 15, which is when this product is going to be released. Mm. So I think probably it is a wise move for, particularly on the editorial side, I mean, if I was working for an agency, that a marketing agency that produced email marketing newsletters, I'd be thinking about what to do already. I think if you're Substack or Review or one of those companies, you probably have a little bit more breathing space and you don't need to have the freak out yet. Yeah, and I think, I think 
that is the key message to take away. Although, you know, having said that, there are lots of, you know, there is almost a third arm in this situation that, you know, would be difficult to get into in much detail. But we are kind of seeing in light of the success of Substack and Review other legacy media organizations repeating the mistakes of the pivot to video or mm, five or yeah, ten years yeah, ago yeah. in pivoting to newsletters and yeah, i'm sure that some of those are relying on open rates and things like that to sell to advertisers so they may be thinking actually they, they're kind of the middle ground i suppose they're not the you know the huge venture-backed companies that don't have to necessarily worry about this right now they're yeah. more closer to the newsletter uh, to the marketing folks that are like well this is potentially a threat to us mm. another thought occurs to me actually if i were you know someone who'd built a business around a substack newsletter or whatever actually you might see this as an advantage because you're going to not lose your subscriber numbers um and actually but actually, in fact, I think if I was Substack, it, the company, I'd be thinking about this because people might go, well, I want to get subscriber numbers. I want people to pay me for my product. I don't want to worry about advertising that I can't try. You know, the one pure metric I will still have is the money coming in every month or every year. And so actually that makes Substack a more appealing home for you, maybe. And obviously then Substack take their cut from it. And yeah, but I think that's that's kind of the thing. I think that is that is the ideal world. But sadly, not everybody is able to get a kind of Substack deal or anything like that. Um, but even if you're not getting a deal, even if you're just someone who's building your business, um, so if you are the com- if you are Substack the company, it may be more appealing to someone who was thinking, oh, maybe I'll get a newsletter, maybe I can do it a different way without giving my money to Substack. You know, take they take a cut cut of it maybe you would go actually Substack is a really good home for me now because I don't care about dealing with advertisers I don't want that uh, I want the direct to consumer interaction they're going to pay me or they're not I'm going to have a mailing list or I'm not the money's going to come in or it isn't uh, and that's it just cleans everything up I agree with that except that I found it difficult to get motivated to write a weekly newsletter mm-hmm. for eight paying subscribers so i guess and this is issues. someone that writes 800 stories a day and makes the rest of us look terrible so <laughs> i couldn't yeah. find time to squeeze it in I, I, I the thing that you don't know is that i just subcontract all of my stuff to typing monkeys that's the challenge. yeah that's true that is true <laughs> we've been in touch with the kind of the royal society for the protection of cruelty to animals don't worry um <laughs> I did also I did also enjoy in your story that you spoke to David Hennemeyer Hansen for who created Hay and you know was part involved in Ruby on Rails and all of that stuff, who has not been afraid to have a little pop at Apple as well over the period of time, recent time yeah. history. That that I did enjoy that he was quite happy to uh, have a little word with you. So yes. if we're looking at this in so say iOS 15 comes out in September. What are we looking at maybe in March, April 2022? Good grief, 2022. Um, what, what, like, what do you think? Will everything have been reshaped? I spoke to uh, people at Adweek and so on. We've done a show on this before. And they were like, well, this is a very slow moving industry. This seems to have, to me, escalated the change that might happen in that industry. Yeah, I, I think, I think. Accelerated. Anyone who is 
particularly on the marketing side, because these people are really interested in the bottom line and making money. As soon as that gets threatened, it kind of forces people to act. So I think that, you know, and you can look at kind of things like the IDFA stuff as well. Like, you know, that's, that's, if you look at sort of surveys of marketers and stuff, that's caused a rethink of of how they're going to approach things pretty rapidly. So I I, I don't imagine that, um, yeah, this is going to necessarily, even though you highlighted the headline of the story, I don't imagine that this is necessarily going to be an extinction event for uh, the email newsletter industry. I think that it will still exist and I think it will adapt in some way. Mm-hmm. I just think that it'll have to work very, very quickly because of the power. And Apple's decision and Apple's moves in this are more interesting to me than I think the actual like mm-hmm. industry itself. Yeah, I mean, do you think we could maybe next WWDC see Apple roll out its own email newsletter product? Here's how you produce your produce content on an Apple piece of software that works perfectly to people within the Apple ecosystem. We Apple gets its usual 15, 30% cut. However, they're going to do it probably 30 for subscriptions. Here we go. That'd be highly convenient, wouldn't it, if that were to happen, Charlotte? <laughs> Chris, you cynic. I mean, it's an interesting one. Do you think they could... I'm serious, though. Do you think Apple could be... could at some point release such a product? Or yeah, be there- look... I have I have no inside knowledge no. of this, but to me it, it it wouldn't surprise me if they did because I I find that they can be quite noble in many ways, but also they need to make money, and so this will presumably affect them as well in doing this. Like, and you don't always just do things for virtue signals. There has to be a business case behind this, surely. Yeah. Um. Uh, and of course, the other thing we haven't really touched on, uh, and I have touched on again, as I say, in separate shows, is this in combination with app tracking transparency is probably what's giving the marketing industry in particular palpitations. But we have seen with app tracking transparency, I think, um, that you know the, the take-up hasn't quite been what we thought it might be. And I mm. can actually see, having gone through the process of setting up mail privacy, um, you do get... As I said, when I did my video, I, I turned it on. And the first time you open mail in iOS 15, you do get an alert to turn mail privacy protection on. And you can do that straight away. It will be very interesting to see the kind of numbers we get of people actually bothering to turn it on. And that could yeah. be the, that's the real unknown in this, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, never underestimates the the willingness of an average user to not do something that is in their benefit. But, uh, you know, it, it, it comes down to the class, as you said, with app tracking transparency, it's this idea of you're making people more aware of how their data is being yeah. used. And I think that builds in a very it all it all kind of snowballs together doesn't it we've seen lots of developments over the last few years of consumers becoming more conscious of the way in which tech companies are Mm -hmm. utilizing their data Mm -hmm. and harnessing it and monetizing them for good and evil and so it is kind of it's a gentle nudge towards doing this and the more that you get informed about this stuff i think the more tempting it is to actually stand back and say well no i don't want this to happen to me so i'm going to opt out mm. or opt in as the case may be yeah 
It's going to be a very, very interesting one to watch how this develops. And I will uh, certainly have you back as we, we get to see how it plays out. But you mentioned pivot to video earlier in the show. And I, I want to do that a little bit now. As I've got you on, I couldn't have a half an hour conversation with you, with you without discussing YouTube and especially TikTok, given you've got a book coming out of it. And every time I've turned on uh, Euro 2020, the soccer tournament that's going on in Europe at the moment, all you see is huge adverts, adverts for TikTok, this social network that has suddenly become the main, you know, it's become a main sponsor of this major, major soccer tournament. It's, um, God, I'm ashamed of myself that I've used the word soccer football tournament. I know I have a predominantly American audience, but it's a football tournament. It's a, and, uh, you know, it, it's a huge thing how it's kind of infiltrated the culture tiktok it's an amazing thing to i'm our me, digital media culture you know i see people from broadcasting their radio one shows which is the big uh, radio, bbc radio station here in the uk um live on tiktok as well they're doing shout outs on the radio and tiktok at the same time you know people have got all sorts of deals on the back of being tiktokers it's quite extraordinary the explosion of it it is, and when you think about the the short period of time that it has existed exactly. as TikTok, it's growing far faster than YouTube, far faster than Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those. Seven hundred and thirty-two million monthly active users worldwide. So say that number again, just so it doesn't get lost. That's a staggering yeah. number. Seven hundred and thirty-two million users log on every single month to TikTok. <laughs> You know, in the UK, the latest data is that one in four adults um, are on TikTok every single month. Um, you know, 100 million users in the US, 100 million users across Europe. Um, you know, ByteDance as a parent company has 1.9 billion users across all of its apps, which includes the Chinese version of TikTok called Douyin. And yeah, as you said, it is having this kind of momentous shift in culture. So. You know, the fact that they are on every advertising hoarding um, at the European Football Championships is not an accident. Um, you know, for, for my book, I kind of spoke to a lot of TikTok executives about the big picture, including the head of uh, TikTok in, in the UK and Europe, Rich Waterworth. And, and he was kind of talking about um, trying to expand the user base. You know, it's traditionally at the very early days, it was this teen focused thing you had lip syncing you had dancing you had you know silly things like that then christmas 2019 and they're one of the beneficiaries of the pandemic so mm. in march 2020 the amount of time spent on tiktok by users worldwide was the amount of time since the stone age to today in that one sorry month. what it, it was an app Annie stat that they had. The amount of time spent by users on TikTok in March 2020 alone was the amount of time between the Stone Age and today. Okay, I think that's just giving me a migraine. Yeah, um, it's like yeah, like like hundreds of thousands of years, basically. And only some of that was me watching silly video, you know. Yeah, exactly. But this is the thing. They're aging up. They're getting football fans interested. The audience is going to become older. With that, the type hey, of content will change. But that's interesting. Yeah. No, it has been. And it definitely when I first signed up just to see what the, the fuss was about, um, I sort of was like, well, I feel a bit silly because this is all... Mm, after you're about 23, you feel a bit older. I'm 33. But actually, there definitely has become... Uh, it, the content has become broader uh, I think 
I mean, the genius of how it kind of keeps you interested, it finds your little bit of TikTok. And so my TikTok looks very different to Chris's TikTok, probably. And that's extraordinarily clever. Um, I, I wrote a while back when I first got on it, what a good advertising platform for Apple it is, just because every video seems to feature an Apple product, whether it's an iPhone, some AirPods, both. It's, it's, it is an extraordinary platform that, yeah, I don't think we've reached anywhere near the peak of it. And I, I look forward to reading your book and getting seeing what else I have to learn about it. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, good luck with the book. That's July 22nd, is it? It is, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, and how else can people keep up with you on Twitter and the like? Uh, they can follow me at Stokel, which is S-T-O-K-E-L. I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't like it. And I can't think of anywhere else that I'm on. Um, yeah, Twitter is the way to get me if you need me quickly. Um, very good. I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. Please do subscribe and share this show if you enjoy our conversations every week. But until then, I'll see you next week. Bye.